listeners, it's Allison here. As you'll be able to tell when you listen to this episode, uh, it was recorded back in March before COVID-19 hit Canada in force and the BC Library Association conference was cancelled. Nonetheless, uh, it's a really fascinating conversation that Karen and I had with Sam Popovich about many topics that are still relevant to libraries, and we wanted to share it with you. We were super excited to talk to Sam. We covered a lot of really interesting ground about libraries and democracy and all kinds of other things. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope that you and your loved ones are doing well, and take care. Welcome to the Organizing Ideas podcast. I'm Karen. And I'm Allison, and we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for the podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Today, our guest is Sam Popovich. Sam is the Discovery and Web Services Librarian at the University of Alberta and a PhD student in political science at the University of Birmingham. Sam is the author of the book, Confronting the Democratic Discourse of Librarianship, a Marxist Approach, which came out in August 2019 and blogs regularly at redlibrarian.github.io. In the lead up to BCLA's conference this year, which has the theme of libraries, democracy and action, we are very excited to talk to Sam today about what democracy is and how it relates to libraries. We are also going to return to an ongoing conversation on this podcast about intellectual freedom and combating transphobia. So this promises to be a great conversation. Thank you for joining us. introduction or anything else you want listeners to know about you? Uh, I don't think so. I was thinking about it and I guess the only thing would be because I talk about technology a lot and I talk about Marxism a lot which tends to have this kind of there are people who feel that Marxism is very scientific um, that I'm more of like an, an art guy so I come to technology and Marxism from a bit more of an intuitive place. Hmm, cool. Um, that leads well, actually, into the next question, which is, can you tell us a bit about how you came to work in libraries and to have a focus on critical theory, labor, tech, and maybe also art? Sure. Um, I grew up in Winnipeg, uh, and I went to University of Manitoba and didn't really have um, much focus then. I was sort of, you know, going through the undergrad, um, did it part-time, took uh, longer than usual to finish. And had no idea what I wanted to do. When I was in undergrad, which was in the mid-90s, I started reading Marx. I, I came across a copy of the Communist Manifesto in the bookstore and read that. But in the mid-90s, you couldn't really talk about Marx or Lenin or anyone like that in a serious way, in at least in Manitoban universities. So after a couple of years um, working after my undergrad, I decided to go to library school um, and was struck pretty quickly uh, by the the very neoliberal focus that my library program anyway had. Um, I went to Dalhousie where the library school is in the faculty of management. So um, we kind of had that whole discourse piling in on us. I, I still kind of had this resistance to using Marx directly. So I got into reading Habermas and Foucault at the time, which was kind of my way into critical theory, but uh, almost using them as stand-ins for, for Marx. So it's taken me a long time. It took me a long time to, to start referring to Marx directly. Um, after library school, I worked a contract uh, for a while and then spent about 10 years just 
not really doing too much critical thinking around librarianship, but just learning the job and, and doing work. Um, then it was about 2016 that I started to write the blog, and Karen Nicholson and Maura Neal, Maura Seal put their uh, call for papers out for the, the book on critical librarianship. And I sort of took that as an opportunity to really dig into um, what Marxism might mean for librarianship and for technology. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell how I got to researching and writing in this area. And then you're just like, okay, now I'm going to write a, or do a PhD? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was actually not going to do a PhD that had anything to do with librarianship. Um, okay. I, I you know I I kind of didn't want to uh, get into that mold of of what I saw as kind of typical LIS research. Um, so my PhD started out as being around artificial intelligence and jobs, which I know like nothing about. But last summer and fall, when all of this intellectual freedom stuff kicked off, um, and I started getting more and more involved in that. It, it made more sense for me to think about doing a political science PhD around intellectual freedom and librarianship. So now what I'm focusing on is the political theory uh, underlying kind of the dominant discourse of intellectual freedom and uh, a kind of anarcho-communist alternative to it. So uh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> cool. Yeah, actually, it surprised me when I was preparing your bio because I thought this book was your PhD these is made the into a book after <laughs> so i jumped at the chance after the after nicholson and seals book came out uh, rory litwin who's the publisher of library juice press just sort of sent me a message on twitter and said if you ever feel like writing a book let me know and i thought well it's kind of too good an opportunity to resist i said sure let i'll let me make you a pitch i'll write a book um and i'd had the the democracy parts kind of floating through my head for a while so i sent him the pitch and he accepted it and I'm lucky enough at University of Alberta to get study leave. So I took a one-year research leave, wrote the book, and started the PhD at the same time. So um, it was it was a busy year, but it was good to be able to focus on that stuff for a while without um, having to come into work every day. So. Oh, very wow. cool. Yeah, we were hearing a lot about Library Juice Press last time. We just talked to Jessica. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about your book a bit. So, because your book is about confronting the democratic discourse of librarianship. And when you say democratic discourse, you're referring to the way that libraries are often talked about hand in hand with democracy. And that is very much what's happening with the BC Library Association's conference this year, which is called Libraries, Democracy and Action. So starting with the basics, what is democracy? <laughs> you ask. For librarians, uh, we often kind of take it for granted. So the, the democratic discourse, you see it in, there's a lot of book titles, um, Arsenals of a Democratic Culture, which is a, a library history, Libraries and Democracy, A Cornerstones of Liberty, which was written by or edited by Nancy Cranich, who was an ALA president, and that was named after her presidential initiative. There's kind of an, an under-theorization of what democracy is supposed to mean. So when a Canadian political party talks about democracy, they'll often mean only the institutions and the procedures of elections. So democracy gets to be very narrowly defined and anything that happens around deliberation or consensus or organization, solidarity outside of those mechanisms doesn't get counted as democracy. Um, probably on the, on the other end, anarchists and some communists will see it as um, a fully participative exercising of control or direction by a society over its own affairs. 
so basically, society gets to decide for itself how it wants to develop, what values it wants to hold, what relationships. Um, political scientists tend to take a middle road where they'll see it as um, a particular form of state. So is is the decision-making of the state done by one person, a small group of people, or many people? Um, if it's many people, then it's a democracy, and then you kind of add these procedural and institutional pieces on top of that. Um, but again, that's a very kind of functional way of looking at it. And then the other piece, which I talk about in the book, is if you do think about democracy as being powered by the people, which was the slogan of the Ontario Library Association conference last year, who constitutes the people? And I think that, for me, is really the heart of the matter, is are we talking about absolutely everyone? Are we excluding people? Um, quite often, there will be a reference made to Athenian democracy, and no reference will be made to the fact that slaves and women were both excluded from political participation. So to us, that wouldn't be a democracy, but it's always held up as uh, kind of the origin story for democratic politics. So that's the real important question for me, is who are we talking about? So that that would be one question, I think, that, like, I think something like the BCLA, if, that, if the theme is libraries, democracy, and action, that would be a question I would hope would be kind of at the heart of uh, what was going on there. Mm-hmm. So then how did democracy start being associated with libraries? So that's that's actually a really interesting question, um, because like intellectual freedom, my my the sense from what I've been reading is that it wasn't part of uh, the culture of librarianship until around the Second World War. So the publicly funded libraries, tax funded libraries come into being uh, in the middle of the 19th century as a response to uh, essentially grassroots democratic revolution in around, in the 1840s that had to be wiped out. Um, so libraries are kind of in, instituted as a way to keep the working class and the poor down, make sure they're inculcated with the right values. So you see this discourse of um, useful literature or improving reading or, you know, almost the same way that we see the sort of civility discussion now as libraries are a way to make working class people conform to middle class norms and not take to the streets. So it's not really until around the time of the Second World War, and a, a good document is uh, Archibald MacLeish, who was a poet and the Librarian of Congress, wrote a couple of articles about how libra- libraries should uh, stop being neutral and make sure that they are throwing their weight behind the struggle for democracy against fascism. So that, to me, is kind of a, a good starting point for where that connection starts to be made. There's a famous quote by Roosevelt that's used in basically every uh, book about libraries and democracy, which dates, I think, from um, roughly the same period, though I'd have to check, where he talks about the democratic connection of libraries and, and democracy. So I I always equated the, the beginning of the libraries and democracy discourse with the socioeconomic and political changes that are happening during and after the Second World War. Which is also the start of the Cold War. And I think, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about um, that or like the contrast of what democracy, you know, one contrast could be democracy versus fascism. Another contrast could be democracy versus communism. I think that in North America and Western Europe, the social transition is to a kind of mass society. And so they needed a discourse, they needed an ideology which would enable people to feel part of this mass society while still having some kind of an enemy. So communism, which was almost the the dark mirror of post-war mass society, becomes that 
becomes that enemy, becomes that other. Mm-hmm. Um, other piece that, that develops at the same time is the military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. So you've got this kind of mass society on one side, this communist enemy on the, on the other side, and then this, this uh, restructuring of capitalism to bring all of workers, all of education, all of politics into a single uh, war machine, essentially, and requiring a whole bunch of ideological control, a whole bunch of discipline, and libraries play right into that. The Vannevar Bush article that we all have to read about the, the Memex, he was right in there with moving libraries towards uh, being active players in the military-industrial complex, getting state contracts for military research and development. So we were we were absolutely part of that that process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've named one question that you would hope that the conference would be thinking about when using um, democracy in the theme, like who who are the people that are being referred to? Uh, what are other questions or, or things that you think about when you hear this theme? Like, do you go, oh no, not again? Or <laughs> um, I, I do yeah. often go, oh no, not again, not again, because it always seems to be coming from the same place where it. By saying, you know, libraries and democracy are are fundamentally connected, it means we don't have to think about what that's supposed to mean, right? It's mm-hmm. like that kind of ends up cutting off discussion rather than promoting it. I think other questions that that always springs up for me is, what is the relationship between libraries and the state? If we live in a democracy, that, that means that we assume we have a particular kind of state that's doing particular kinds of things. So what's the connection between the library and the state, and then how do you explain non-democratic things that we see libraries doing? Like, if there is this inherent connection, how do we explain, you know, that helps to explain the pieces we like about libraries, which, and there are a lot of them, but it doesn't actually help us to think about the things that we don't like, you know, anti-sleeping policies, transphobic speakers, right? How do we, how do we mesh those two, those two things, or what kind of conversations can come out of that contradiction, I guess? Mm-hmm. Thank you. So maybe moving on to a section, our section on intellectual freedom. Um, in the book, you talk a lot about intellectual freedom, and we've also been talking a lot about that here on your blog and on Twitter. So how and, and you mentioned like you know it depend with democracy depends on who you ask what that means so how would you define intellectual freedom I've, I've been wrestling with this one a lot like democracy the the very the term intellectual freedom comes out of a particular liberal philosophy it comes out of a particular worldview and just using the term ropes us into that into the terms of that discussion so it's really hard you know to think of an alternative that might open up some space that's that's not part of this hegemonic way of looking at intellectual freedom so that we can think about alternatives. It's, it's really hard to carve that space out if we're forced to use that term. We run the risk, and this has happened to me, we run the risk of people saying, well, you're not against, you're, you're against intellectual freedom. Well, I'm not really against intellectual freedom. I just have a different understanding of it. And it would be nice if there was another way to put it. So I get, I get, I sort of wrestle with this question a lot. There's also the issue of, you know, around the Toronto and Vancouver public room rentals. To me, that was never an intellectual freedom problem. It was a different kind of problem. But because uh, the libraries and, the, you know, the CFLA refer to it as an intellectual freedom problem, that again roped us into this, this single way of approaching the problem. It would have been better, I think, 
if we'd been able to hold our ground and say, this isn't actually an intellectual freedom issue, we need to discuss it in other terms. Having said all that, for me, intellectual freedom has to always come back to our conception of freedom, which tends, again, to be one of those things that just gets used without really thinking about what it's supposed to mean. And so it ends up closing off conversation rather than um, sparking discussion. Um, the For Marxists, um, Marxists have a long history of challenging liberal ideas of freedom as being either absolute, right, there's a possibility of some kind of abstract absolute freedom, or that freedom is related in some artificial or external way to necessity or constraint. So liberals might look at it as, yes, there are, there are necessary things in our lives, you know, there's uh, hunger, there's poverty, things like that. Those are necessary, um, and the way to become free is to get rid of those necessary things. So we can only become necessary if we just we can only become free if we destroy the things that are necessary. Um, Marxists tend to look at it more dialectically and say uh, we will never be completely rid of necessity. There are always going to be things that are necessary for us to do, and we have to reconceive of freedom within those constraints. Freedom is always partial. Freedom is always connected in a very internal, organic way with things that are necessary. And I think that in terms of intellectual freedom, that idea opens up a whole lot of possibilities for us. The dominant absolutist conception of freedom basically says anything that's not absolute freedom is censorship. And so it's a very black and white way of looking at things. By understanding that there's a, that there's a real relationship between freedom and its opposite, whatever you want to call it, it's easier to say, well, there are these things which are not absolute freedom, because that doesn't ever really exist, but they're also not authoritarian censorship, right? And so it gives us a much more flexible way of thinking about what we mean by libraries defending intellectual freedom, uh, what we mean by deplatforming as being censorship. Like, um, I think thinking about intellectual freedom in those terms manages to help us or should help us avoid some of these pitfalls that we see the libraries and the library associations falling into so that we can support social justice, we can support inclusion and diversity and equity without painting ourselves into a corner by using these really abstract, rigid definitions of things, if that makes sense. Yeah, and when you were just, the, the last thing you were just talking about there was making me think about during the um, Toronto Public Library uh, like the lead up to that when Vickery Bowles was doing interviews and, and switching from intellectual freedom to freedom of speech as a term, which to me takes that absolutist thing even farther. <laughs> I think for me, when people started commenting on that on Twitter and talking about that shift in her language helped me see that distinction as well, if it makes sense. I think that's that's absolutely true. I think it really stuck out to a lot of people when when she moved from intellectual freedom to free speech because that all of a sudden connects what she's saying to a whole right-wing set of discussions mm -hmm. uh, that I'm not sure she was necessarily aware of connecting to when she did that but for those of us who were, were really paying attention to that I think that was a really telling shift for sure mm -hmm. I have another thought on this and now I've lost it let's see will it come back Oh, well, maybe later. Um, how did you get interested in the topic of intellectual freedom? Well, as you say, I, I touched on it um, in the book where it was it was kind of, 
you know, just part and parcel of the, the democracy argument. And then I probably I was just thinking about it more because I had gotten onto the CFLA Intellectual Freedom Committee with a particular thing in mind. I, I wanted to uh, bring up the idea of better or stronger workplace speech protections for, for example, public library workers. And I think I'd been on that committee probably for a few weeks when uh, Vancouver Pride banned Vancouver Public from the parade. And, of course, that made it into the discussions of the Intellectual Freedom Committee. And really, the, the, the dominant way of discussing it on the committee was, you know, these these this organization is forcing Vancouver Public to go against its values, which I pushed back against by saying, well, look, they have these other values that uh, aren't being taken into consideration. And, and so why does their intellectual freedom value trump those? Um, and that kind of sparked this off for me. And then when it happened again at Toronto Public, I think that there was just so much... I'd already started thinking about it, um, but there was just so much going on, on Twitter primarily, but just in general. I knew more trans people who were affected by it, I think, was another issue. So all of a sudden there were people that I knew reasonably well who were talking about it in, in, in really significant ways, which at least in, in my circle hadn't happened around Vancouver. So it was part of, you know, kind of being a little bit upset and angry at the Intellectual Freedom Committee of the CFLA, part of feeling more of a personal connection to what was going on in Toronto that really started getting me thinking about what this meant and what the consequences were for this absolutist intellectual freedom position. Angrily kept bashing out blog posts. <laughs> Uh, what was that committee like? I understand you're no longer on it. I'm no longer on it. I wasn't actually on it for very long. Um, I don't know if, if, you know, uh, it, um, it very much represented, uh, the CEOs of public libraries and their positions. Um, there were some academic librarians on it. There were some LIS professors on it. But for the most part, it was interested in very pragmatic and practical pieces that connected to public libraries. So in the same way that the, um, the ALA's Office of Intellectual Freedom is interested in, you know, banned books, uh, toolkits for how to respond to challenges, that kind of thing. And all of this fits into, you know, critical librarianship discussions around the focus on practicality and not thinking about values. It, it very much was about those really kind of practical pieces. I hate to say it, but most of the people who were on it were older. And so there there really was, in the same way that the Toronto Public room rental piece has really exposed a division within the profession that is at least partly generational, you could see it on the committee as well. Um, so there were people talking about how millennial librarians didn't understand intellectual freedom and had to be taught, right? They, you know, obviously they weren't getting it from the library schools because they were coming in with these, you know, these silly values like social justice and inclusion and things like that. And there was a problem in the public libraries of uh, convincing those younger librarians that they were wrong and that they ought to be taking in the regular absolutist intellectual freedom position. And interestingly, there are there are some uh, because CFLA is a federation of library associations. There are some library associations which are pushing back. BCLA is one of them. Um, so that's that's really interesting. So when the CFLA IF committee 
put out a letter in support of Vancouver Public Library, Vancouver Public Library is not a member of CFLA. BCLA mm-hmm. is. So BCLA wrote another letter um, basically criticizing the fact that CFLA had weighed in on uh, at the request of one uh, library. Same thing happened with Toronto Public, of course, um, which which was really the event that led me to resign from the committee uh, because I'd been so vocal about intellectual freedom and TPL, when the request came in, um, not from a library association, to write a letter of support for Vickery and Toronto Public, and we were just going to go ahead and do that, and there wasn't really going to be any debate, uh, I didn't feel like, you know, my name was on the Intellectual Freedom Committee list on the CFLA website. I couldn't really have my name on there and be writing critical blog posts about absolutist intellectual freedom at the same time so that was when i quit and and so a lot of things like you know more blog posts on the phd are probably a little bit out of spite for uh not being able to get my across in the if committee like shelby said spite is a powerful thing (laughs) i think ted has also been tweeting about revenge as a phd (laughs) motivator so (laughs) you're in good company with many prior guests um (laughs) Okay, so intellectual freedom, refocusing on your book. So some of the arguments you make in there, although they you wrote them well before the Toronto and Vancouver thing, very relevant. And one of them actually maybe sort of relates also to what you're talking about with the committee, because you talk about the divide in librarianship between deontological and consequentialist perspectives on intellectual freedom. And we're going to get you to tell us what those are and argue that the, the tension between those two perspectives is only resolvable through revolution, which will bring a restructuring of society and new ways of thinking through these issues rather than just like keep rehashing the same arguments that have been turning people around in circles for like a hundred years almost now. Can you walk us through that argument for folks who haven't read it? Because I found it really interesting and useful and validating in being like, you know, as a millennial librarian who believes in things like social justice and inclusion, (laughs) um, that maybe we just need really different ways of thinking about this. Yeah, and it's, I'm glad you sent the questions in advance. I had to reread those pages in the book to remember what I had to Um, but yeah, so uh, deontology and consequentialism are two ethical positions, um, deontology being an ethics of rules and procedures and duties. So if I follow these rules, then the ethical outcome is assured. That's kind of in a, oversimplifying it, but in a nutshell. <laughs> and consequentialism is an ethical position that cares more about the outcome. So it doesn't really matter how I get there as long as the end result is um, ethical. And of course, a lot of the times these are written about as if they're completely diametrically opposed. But really, you have to have a consequence in mind if you're, even if you're taking a deontological position, you have to care about the ethical outcome. And of course, even if you're a consequentialist, you have to think about how you're going to get to that endpoint. So they're already a little bit more muddy than, than most ethical discourse will get at. And so, one of the things, one of the sort of Marxist methodologies is whenever you see things proposed as opposites or as externally related in some way, that you start to think about, well, what ways are they in fact related? So I, I just touched on uh, some of the ways in which these two positions aren't really as diametrically opposed as they first appear. But also, what, um, where do they come from in a given society? 
and what kind of social change would be required to overcome that opposition and make us see that they're in fact the same thing? So I know I started rethinking my use of the term revolution because I know, and I mean, you had Jessica Schomburg on last time, and they flagged revolution a couple of times as potentially ignoring marginalized people and and kind of allowing for marginalized people to suffer through a revolution with the idea that you know you, that they're just collateral damage or something like that. So I do think that that revolution in terms of a fundamental social transformation is required to overcome these dualisms. But I'm also aware that revolution maybe is not the right word to use if you're thinking about something different from like a Bolshevik insurrection, something like that. So, sorry, that was a long way around to get back to your question. Um, so there's this idea that, that these binary oppositions, we, we have them as part of our society because they're reflections of certain um, economic or social or political inequality. And that the only way to get rid of that, those two partial ways of thinking about things and come up with a sort of single, more holistic way of looking, about thing, looking at things is to, is to transform the society that we live in to make that possible. I'm not sure anymore. In the book, I kind of equate deontology with absolutist intellectual freedom and social responsibility with consequentialism, saying that intellectual freedom is all about processes. So we have to respect intellectual freedom processes in order to achieve democracy and social responsibility as being um, we need to understand what the end goal is, what the effects are going to be of the decisions that we make. Those aren't as black and white either, but I think I think that split is very reflective of um, material contradictions within the profession that can only be overcome by transforming the profession. Um, in a nutshell, that's probably I think that's the argument I was making. Mm-hmm. It was a lot. There's a lot to think about there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think what it also makes me think about is I don't know. I'm a very practical person. I'm like, what can we do about this thing? Um, and so you know, I have gotten involved in various things to try and think about like how else could we address this or how could we have these conversations or, or whatever. And, uh, and reading your book kind of, I was like, Hmm, maybe we don't need to just keep having these conversations, but I'm not really sure what, um, I mean, yeah, librarianship is a reflection of this broader society that we live in. And so a social transformation requires much more than just librarians or the, or the profession talking about this or library workers more broadly, but yeah, I'm curious, you know, having seen this play out with these very concrete examples, where do you think this conversation is headed? Or, or what do you think would be next steps on this as a profession? I know I've seen someone sent me recently that Vancouver Public Library at their last board meeting had a conversation about potentially encouraging legal advocacy around this issue. So if (laughs) librarianship is going to follow the rules of, you know, the law as imposed by the state, which is not necessarily just, that maybe one potential avenue is to try and get the rules changed. I have mixed feelings about this approach, but uh, yeah, I'm curious where you see this going or have thoughts on that. I I would also start out by saying that um, from my perspective, the kinds of discussions we're having in the profession are changing, have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, podcast, for example, um, a lot of people who are writing currently and getting published by Library Juice Press, um, the discussion has changed a lot. 
Um, it, what I worry about, though, is that that discussion, the things that, that you're putting out, the things that I'm putting out, things that, you know, other Jessica's book that's coming out, are all part of a really valuable discussion and are all repositioning how we're looking about these things. But this split in the profession that seems to have been exposed by the, the especially the Toronto Public event, means that we aren't we aren't having those conversations as a profession. We aren't bridging that uh, that gap. So the library schools and the public library CEOs aren't really listening to us. We're not really listening to them. I mean, except mm-hmm. we have a choice really to engage in their discourse. They have a choice about whether they engage with ours. So I think I think the discussion is good. Uh, the discussion has changed. We, we're touching on a lot of things that uh, I think previous generations of social responsibility library workers uh, didn't the same way. So I think all of that is positive. I think there are material changes that are going to have to happen. You're right. I, I agree that I don't think legal reform is really the way to go. It's too slow. It's too easily recuperable by the same mechanisms uh, that we're fighting against. But, uh, and you know, this is kind of typical of probably my subject position as a straight white dude in a good job. I don't know what the material resistance should look like. And probably I shouldn't know. Probably it should be up to other people to tell me what they think material resistance should look like. I wrote a blog post recently where I connected budget cuts within, you know, universities and the precariatization of labor in universities and the desire to resist that with First Nations blockades right now. Uh, climate change protests, things like that. Um, probably, ideally, we would roll our social justice concerns up into some, almost like into a package where we're looking to First Nations resistance as kind of a model to follow. We support them and then we bring in our, whatever our professional concerns are, we bring those in as well. And that, there's something very Leninist about that, which would probably put a lot of people off. Um, and, I, and again, I haven't. I think I think this is a, a bit of a bit of a hard piece for me to think through, just because of my background. But I think it probably there's something there about it. There's also this question of kind of small scale resistance. So I've talked a little bit about it. Uh, Donna Lanclo, who's active on Twitter, has written about uh, refusal and resistance in the workplace, uh, slowdowns, you know, basically labor disruptions short of a strike. Um, but unless you can formulate what you want to see happen uh, while you're doing that, then then those kind of get, they run the risk of getting, of being wasted. So if we have particular demands that we want in a particular situation, I could see resistance, you know, small scale resistance and refusal helping with that. Um, so if there was a particular policy at a library we wanted changed or something we wanted implemented in a particular library, we could, we could do that. That might work in a public library that's, you know, doing room rentals to people that we don't think should be using libraries. But my sense is that uh, the reaction, our reaction to Vickery and to Vancouver Public uh, was so strong that they've kind of doubled down and they're not listening at the moment. We're kind of at an impasse, I think, there. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe one last question about intellectual freedom, which is that you've pointed out uh, as we were talking today and, and also in the book about while libraries often present themselves as advocates for this, whatever it means to them, the freedom isn't extended to their own staff who often face very serious repercussions for expressing their opinions, perspectives, and beliefs. Just from anecdotal stuff that I've heard from people working at Vancouver and Toronto, I think this played out quite differently in both systems. My understanding from people that worked in Vancouver was that they were told, you can have an opinion about it, you can talk about that. Um, Whereas in Toronto, as far as I know, nothing like that happened there. But I'm curious if you have other examples or thoughts on why you think the hypocrisy is so prevalent, like you know, you tried to address this on the Intellectual Freedom Committee and people weren't really having those conversations. Can you talk more about that? I think the first time, so, you know, I, I've worked for a public library. I know pe- plenty of people who have worked for public libraries and it was con- kind of always a low level thing around, you know, the fact that that decisions within public libraries are very hierarchical. Um, and once they're made, there's not really a mechanism to challenge them from the bottom up. Sometimes in particular situations, maybe that happens. So if that happened at Vancouver. But the first time I noticed it explicitly was there was a conference which had academic librarians and public librarians in the audience. And the academic librarians were the only ones who were who felt comfortable to speak uh, in the Q&A afterwards. But in the back channels, in discussions after the conference, it was clear that public librarians had their own views but didn't feel like they were able to um, to talk about those things. So we're put in this weird position where academic librarians are speaking for public librarians because public librarians don't feel they can do that without repercussions. And I'm using librarians now instead of library workers because there is actually a sort of legal or governance distinction between the two. I think the ability to speak ought to be applied to all library workers, but even when we're just talking about librarians, there's a difference there. And then over the years, there's been other things, you know, public librarians having conference presentations vetted by their leadership, things like that, which would be, which would just be completely unconscionable to an academic librarian. Being able to even really say that you work at a public library, you know, out of this fear that you're going to misrepresent their views or things like that. So it happens, you know, when I was on the IF committee, some of the CEOs denied that they had that problem in their library. But when you talk to public librarians off the record, Uh, It comes up quite a lot. And I mean, I have lots of reasons why I think that's the case. I think part of it is that public libraries are in a strange position where uh, not only are they state institutions, and under neoliberalism, that means that they're competing with other state institutions. So within a municipality, they're competing for budget dollars with Parks and Rec or with Waterworks or with Power or with whatever. So there's more politics involved in their relationship to the government than I think there used to be. And then on the other hand, they're so integrated within the the network of commodity relationships, right? We, Not just public libraries, academic libraries as well, but public libraries spend so much money on the commodities that they're purchasing, the software that they use, the makerspaces that they implement. You know, quite often there's this discussion of libraries as being uh, places where commodification, you know, does isn't in effect, that, that people mm-hmm. come into a library and they're not expected to buy anything, and yet... Public libraries in displays and things like that are ads for privately produced commodities. Like, th- there's this, there is this sort of discursive block around recognizing to what extent public libraries are integrated into the system of commodity production and sales, even though we're not the ones actively selling things. 
So I think all of that means that the libraries have this brand that they need to protect, um, and that ends up being that ends up becoming kind of the the one sacrosanct um, value that the libraries hold. So in, in a way, the the list of values that they might put out on their website all take second, all take a back seat to protecting the brand. And I think that's where a lot of this stems from. And I mean, academic libraries are just as hierarchical, like the decisions are made by one person at the very top and the rest of us implement them. But academic, the culture of academic freedom, I feel in the academic libraries I've worked in, has taken hold in a stronger way so that we are able to speak publicly, write publicly, challenge our own institution in a way that public librarians aren't. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting cultural divide within the, the two biggest branches of the profession. Thanks. Wow, um, that's a lot to think about, Karen. As you prepare to graduate, <laughs> decide where you want to work. Yeah. <laughs> so you engage a lot with theory and ideology, and there's a lot of history that goes on, especially you know, as it's with, you know, different types of libraries, like public and academic. So maybe focusing on chapter three, which is called, or the chapter um, three hegemonies of library history, you write about the industrial library and how certain events uh, such as World War II have affected librarianship. And you outline how in the 1930s and 40s, there was a call for librarians to, quote, do more in defense of democracy against fascism. Uh, During the the war, free access to information on social and political matters suddenly took on a new significance as mass propaganda took center stage on both sides of the conflict. As a result, the mission of the library began to change, end quote. And that's on page 200. So with the upcoming British Columbia Library Association Conference on Democracy, can you talk about hegemony? And, you know, how libraries are implicated? Sure. Hegemony comes out of, in, in, in the Marxist tradition, it comes specifically out of Antonio Gramsci, um, who, prior to Gramsci, there was this idea that the state really just was coercive. Like, it, it sent the police in, and it, were, it ruled by force alone. And Gramsci said, well, that's not, strictly speaking, true. There's, there's an element of force. The police are sent in when, when necessary. But there are also all these ways that the state or the government or capital keeps order, maintains an orderly society, which are not forced, which are not coercion. And this is this is hegemony. So basically, there's uh, playing to various interests in, in of different groups. So when we see, you know, the government being prepared to negotiate with the Wet'suwet'en, for example there's a sense that the government is prepared to listen to what they want, compromise, and get them on side. So the older theory of the state would have said, well, they're just going to send the army in and clear out the blockades, and and no one is going to have a chance to express any of their views. Gramsci's theory of hegemony says, well, no, you do need to be able to compromise with groups that are challenging your system of order. Material things that they want, you know, compromising on, you know, compromising on the way laws are formed, compromising on compensation, for example. Those might be ways that you would do it. But there's also an ideological part to that, where if you can inculcate the vast majority of society with the same values that you hold, then you don't need to send the police after them. They already believe in your version of social order. 
So under capital, you need to convince workers, for example, that they benefit from being exploited by capital. So by putting it that way, it, you can see that it, it would actually be a, that's a tricky thing to do, you would think. And yet all of the cultural production under capitalism, from sitcoms to Avengers movies to popular music, are designed to make people identify with the ruling class and their own exploitation. Uh, my sense is that marginalized groups tend to be small enough that the government can decide whether to try to exercise hegemony or whether to exercise force. That it's not going to jeopardize social order very much if it stamps out really small groups, right? So you can think of um, the Dukabors actually are a good example in DC. Uh, so the Dukabors were a religious group that came over Russia who were in this kind of weird Russian way um, sort of anarchists. So they, I mean, they were a re religious anarchists, if that makes sense. And one of the things that they didn't agree with was sending their kids to state school, kind of like some of the, the Anabaptist sects in, in the U.S. And so there were court orders that made them, that told them they had to send their kids to state schools. They refused. And so the RCMP were sent in to take their kids to school. So the, the Dukabors were not a big group. It wasn't going to cause a national scandal if the RCMP went in there and exercised force in bringing these kids to school. What we're seeing today is that First Nation groups in Canada are big enough, organized enough, that the government can't simply rely on sending forces. They have to exercise hegemony. In terms of librarianship, that means that a lot of what we do is around the promotion and maintenance of a hegemonic ideology of capitalism. So it's why we insist on democracy. It's why we insist that we're spaces free of commodification when we're not. It's why we insist that we're free. We're not free. Right? Taxpayers pay for us. But there's a there's a there's a discursive protection that we set up around the profession by saying that we are impartial, we're neutral, free, we're not part of this hegemonic system of control that's happening elsewhere in the in the country. And it's sort of a, a Wizard of Oz moment, right, where we're we're trying to get people not to look behind the curtain at the way libraries actually function. I think that's why I'm interested in library history. That's why I'm interested in kind of the material aspects of how libraries function, you know, because they tend to undercut these ideas that that we are not part of this hegemonic machine. So in, do, in terms of doing more, I think a, a big first step is to uh, challenge and criticize and not accept these kind of platitudes around democracy and freedom and neutrality and, you know, non-commodification that tend to get tend to have a lot of currency in the profession. What what do you think would happen then, like, if, say, like, you talked about, like, you know, looking behind the curtain, that Wizard of Oz thing, what what would happen if we really did just, you know, throw the curtain aside? And I, th I think if we were actually able to do that, we could have, we, we would be forced to have much more honest and open conversations about what our role is in society. Uh, right now, you know, if you read a lot of the, the, the mainstream library books, uh, or histories, um, there is this sense that while they're prepared to be a little bit critical about particular things, overall they still maintain the idea that the library is a, a force for social good and progress and uh, equality and social justice and things like that. And I think what critical librarianship is saying is that, in fact, the library doesn't fulfill that role. The library may partly fulfill that role or not at all, but it has all this other aspect to it, which is around social control and hegemony, um, the maintenance of particular kinds of normativity 
and the inculcation of members of the public with particular values. I, I tend to think of them as property values a lot of the time. So I think the, the first thing that would happen is we would have these much more open and honest discussions about what our role in society is if we couldn't, if we stopped relying on these abstractions that ended, that have the result of stopping discussion from happening, right? So the second you want to talk, you want to criticize intellectual freedom, you're, you're a censor and you can't get past that. The conversation can't continue anymore. If we were able to, to sort of take down the curtain and recognize that there isn't anything as pure absolute democracy or pure absolute intellectual freedom, I think that would help us have the conversations. It would make our relationship with the public really, really complicated, I think. Right now, the public has been convinced that libraries are these spaces free of commodification, sharing spaces, spaces for the public. And I think if we were to expose the fact that we aren't, that would that would really jeopardize our relationship with the public, which is why hegemonic institutions like library schools and public library CEOs don't want to do that. But I think if we do want to move forward, we are going to have to risk that. I don't see how we move forward without risking our relationship with the public. Oh, okay. Another question I had was something that's causing me a lot of anxiety, which is, you know, surveillance and cyber capitalism and issues of privacy and control. It's funny because like the readings for my classes this week are all kind of on the same topic. It's like everything (laughs) coordinated really well. And in one of the chapters near the end of the book, you write about truth machines and how industrial capitalism can be characterized as a society of discipline and neoliberalism as a society of control. Um, can you talk about what you mean by truth machines and how libraries and library workers participate in a society of control? And then, you know, as a follow-up, like, what does that mean for intellectual freedom and democracy? So the, the idea of, of society of discipline and society of control come from Foucault and Gilles Deleuze. Uh, and Gilles Deleuze wrote an article, a short article, which is quoted in that chapter, on basically computerization and the, the transition to a society of control. Foucault had argued that in the early modern period, there had been a transition from a society of physical repression, where um, if you stepped out of line, you were physically punished um, to keep you in line. And the threat of physical punishment was what kept society ordered. And that in the 70s or so, or no, I guess just after the Second World War, that there was this transition to a society of discipline where a lot of the physical punishment was internalized. The idea of physical punishment was internalized. And so the idea of the panopticon, where everybody's being watched constantly so that they don't step out of line, and the internalization of discipline within people uh, was part and parcel of more modern social formations. And Deleuze argued that whereas the panopticon is centralized, is sort of a central big brother who's out looking at everyone, that uh, with computerization and the network, this was all able to be decentralized. So the society of control was about, there was no longer any central authority looking at you, making sure that you were not stepping out of line. It had been completely internalized and completely decentralized. And as I was reading, I was reading some, you know, I was reading a lot about Marxist ideas of technological development. And some of the things that I was reading there were about the ways in which uh, user interface, for example, uh, or user experience, determines how people think and react. So in user experience discussions, we tend to think uh, in the same way exactly that we do around intellectual freedom, that people come to a user interface with, you know, having having chosen and understanding what they want and how they want to uh, interact with a system. 
this is kind of the the blank slate idea for intellectual freedom where people choose their intellectual orientations without constraint. Whereas Marxists would say, you're born into a particular society, you're born speaking, you know, you're, you're brought up speaking a language that you didn't choose, you're born up values of your parents and the values of your school. And so this idea that there is some free, isolated individual that is somehow now engaging with society is wrong. So you can take that a step further and say that with user experience or user interface design, they make the same assumption that there are these isolated atomic individuals who approach a system and we are then supposed to give them what they want. So give them what they want is like you know, the, the hallmark of intellectual freedom and user interface design. But machines themselves can, are part of what determines what we're like, um, especially for those of us who've grown up after the advent of the personal computer, say. Um, so a good example in, in the book chapter, I think, that I quote from Maurizio Lazzarato is an ATM machine, where an ATM machine, you approach an ATM machine, there's one place to put your card, there's one way to type your code in, there's a selected, very restricted menu of options. You are brought into the network with this machine that produces how you think about technology, finance, and the world around you. So it's that engagement with the machine that produces truth as you understand it. And so I was I was thinking in terms of these truth machines, these machines that we're engaging with, whether they're uh, computer systems or hardware systems or cars or trains or airplanes, which through the way that we interface with them changes us, determines how we think about and engage with things, which is which is, I'm sure, part of the things that people in human computer interaction think about, but doesn't tend to make it to the mainstream of library thinking around UX and, and user interface, at least in the things that I've read. I hope I don't mispronounce his last name, but Justin Jokway, who's a data visualization librarian, um, has talked a lot about um, statistics and how statistics produce truth uh, and the ways statistics can be structuring on the individual as well. Um, and so that there's an interesting connection there, I think. Um, but that's basically what I was thinking about in terms of truth machines. It was interesting. I pitched that as an article to two different journals, and it was rejected both times for not being about libraries enough. And I, I just thought I wrote it as a library piece. Like it, I thought that was odd. But anyway. I also had this question. Well, I wonder if we have time to like talk about what is cybernetic capitalism. <laughs> I can probably say it briefly. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so cybernetic capitalism, capitalism is basically this idea that uh, with the advent of robotics and automation and computers, that our lives are cybernetic, kind of in the maybe in the Donna Haraway sense where mm. we engage every minute of every day with these machines. These machines are part of our lives. And so we are in some senses cyborgs. And so it's capitalism organized around that. Whereas earlier forms of capitalism brought humans and machines together for particular periods of time to do work. And then the human and the machine were split up. We're on social media all day, which is producing money for people. The work that certainly the work that I do absolutely every day is through the machine. So capitalism itself has become cybernetic in that sense. Can you talk a little bit more about your work then? Because you're a discovery and web services librarian. And um, so I was curious how that relates to what you were writing about with cybernetic capitalism. I think definitely the work that I do has informed why I wanted to write about Marxism and technology and library work, because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of very practical work. There's a lot of very technical nuts and bolts work involved in being any kind of systems librarian and probably any kind of librarian but we don't we don't tend to be able to get our heads up out of the weeds enough to really think critically about what we're doing um, and so the research that I was doing around um, 
politics and political theory and technology was a way for me to to think about and conceptualize what I was doing more than I was able to just in, in my work. Um, so my work involves a lot of figuring out how data gets indexed in a discovery system, dealing with user interface design in search engines, dealing with proxies or malfunctioning proxies, dealing with link resolver, working with cataloging teams on how we catalog uh, electronic resources, things like that. So lots of very practical, technical, nuts and bolts stuff. And, and I very much felt like there was an absence in my day-to-day work of any kind of conceptual richness, I guess. Thank you. I was talking to a friend and classmate of mine that I'm working on a class project for. He's interested in user experience and not libraries. Um, and his question was, uh, what do you think about library socialism? And he also said to ask you about what you think of usufruct, which I don't really, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so I didn't either. Oh, okay. <laughs> when, when I read the first half of the question, I'm like, oh yeah, library socialism, I can probably think of something about that. But when uh, with the mention of usufruct, I'm like, he must be talking about something specific. So I Googled it. Okay. And I found this really long set of podcasts about library socialism. And I, like, Cory Doctorow wrote about them. I think that's why they sort of took off. So I was, I started listening to them. I haven't had a chance to work my th- way through them because they're very long. I worry that just in the little bit of the podcast that I've listened to, I worry that they're setting up library socialism as an alternative to the democratic discourse of libraries, but again, setting it up as this kind of abstraction without looking at the material realities of the way that libraries work. Um, so they're talking about libraries as spaces of sharing, libraries as spaces of non-commodification, uh, libraries as spaces of non-repression, um, you know, free spaces, things like that, which they're equating with a particular kind of socialism. And I think in an ideal way, that makes sense to me. But again, if you start looking at you know, anti-sleep policies, um, which have just been in the news again. Anti-sleep policies are a particular kind of class-based discipline. So how does the concrete fact of anti-sleep policies fit with our ideas either of libraries as democratic spaces or libraries as socialist spaces? So again, I haven't listened to enough of the podcast really to, to figure out their whole argument, but just in the little bit I listened to, I think, they, they may be falling into the same trap that a lot of the mainstream thinkers in librarianship are, which is setting up this abstraction of socialism, which would then allow them to ignore the material inequalities of the way that libraries actually function. I, I will finish listening to it, though. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Maybe you can write a blog post and then he can read it and he'll know all yeah. your thoughts on it. <laughs> so to close, is there anything you'd like to leave folks to think about for the BCLA conference in April um, or whenever uh, whenever libraries and democracy are paired together? I think there's going to be lots for people to talk about at BCLA this year, so I, I have no worries that there's going to be lots of discussions about a lot of different topics. For me, I think... I think it's always, it, it comes back to that question of exclusion. Whenever libraries and democracies are paired, are, libraries and democracy are paired together, I feel like the definition of who is the citizen gets ignored and what that citizenship is supposed to mean gets ignored. So for me, that's always the question that it comes back to. What populations are being excluded from your conception of citizenship when you're talking about democracy? Fundamentally, I think that's, that's the question. And with the, the, the room rental things that, uh, Vancouver and Toronto and now it's Seattle, it's not hard to to figure out which groups are being excluded from your conception of democracy. Yeah, well, I mean, the other 
thing that I think comes up for me when you say that is like, I think that Vancouver and Toronto have and would say that trans people are included in their definition, but the treatment that they're expected to endure is, <laughs> in my opinion, very much undermines that statement because, you know, you see the argument that they put out. Well, it's kind of the empty slate thing that you were talking about earlier, right? Like people need to hear both sides. People need to hear all the different perspectives. Trans people need to come and be part of the debate or conversation. I saw a thing about that. Apparently it came up at the American Library Association public library conference thing last week. Oh, we need trans people there to tell a different side of the story. Like trans people are on, I'm putting this in quotes, but like on equal footing, equally um, granted citizenship, but that's not really enough in my opinion like there's some there's a, there's like another level there of 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 something happening power being exercised or yeah it's it's the power thing that that I always come back to that there is a complete evacuation of questions of power from most mainstream library discussions so you're right that probably the first thing you need to do is separate the rhetoric from what's actually happening which i think lots of us in the critlib world are are actively engaged in but then there's there's exactly I think what you just pointed out, which is there's there's the kind of formal equality of citizenship, and then there's what you're actually putting people through, and not recognizing that those are two different things lies at the heart of a lot of these power questions. I think, um, and and again, this is this is something that Marx pointed out around uh, workers that workers are formally free. Um, this is what separates capitalism from feudalism. Workers are formally free. They're allowed to sign contracts to sell their labor, but in reality, they have no choice. And so that distinction between formal equality, formal freedom, and what people are actually made to endure, and I think about the, the Toronto Public Library board meeting, right, and the mm -hmm. things that people had to go through, which you would not expect from members of other groups, uh, I, I think I think that's, it's getting at those pieces that's really vital right now, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I could talk about this all day long. <laughs> I just more and more questions are coming into my head. But Part two? we won't. <laughs> we won't. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Um, if folks want to reach you online, where can they find you? On Twitter a lot. So at Red Librarian. Awesome. Thanks. I'll say ours too. We can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod, uh, organizing with a Z, not an S. And our email is organizingideaspod at gmail.com. Our website is organizingideaspod.wordpress.com. And thank you so much again, Sam. It was great to talk to you ever since we started this podcast. I've been a fan of your blog and of your Twitter and really wanted to dive into this conversation. So um, yeah, thank you so, so, so much for not only this, but everything you've been doing. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was really great to chat. Yeah. Great. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye. Okay. Thank you.